One of the things that I've noted uh, it was true of my life um, when I was uh, a college student and a young believer growing in the Lord. Uh, I hear it in the questions our students ask uh, um, through the years. Uh, I hear it in the some of the questions that we handled in the in the relationships thing, as well as the, the conversation last night through question and response, um, that there's this hunger to, to, to frame our lives, to well, what is this like? How, you know, how do you know a thing? How do you, how do you discern a thing and all? And again, I want to, uh, because we're trying to, to uh, in a sense, broaden the, the horizon of our perceptions so that it becomes more conformed and and we experience more deeply the, the intimacy of Christ through the Spirit and the workings of Christ in our hearts and towards each other, that uh, there's oftentimes a, a, a tension between uh, the experiential and the framative worldview we have. And I just think this catches it quite wonderfully. You know, a couple of kids, you know, one quite worried about a second flood, and the other one, having read their scripture well and knowing the story well, was able to speak in and says, isn't this what good theology does for us? Isn't this what good knowledge of God, theology, knowledge of God, isn't this what it does for us? It gives shaping meaning to our world. And as it shapes our world, it allows us to, in wisdom and growing insight, it allows us to be discerning, it allows us to speak wisely, it allows us to have a frame of how to deal with what it means to be a Jesus person in the Western culture, in the early part of the 21st century, in a culture that has moved from being uh, dominated by at least the, uh, the, the underpinnings of a Christian worldview to now really being quite dominated by a very different uh, type of agenda. Not all of it bad, but, but certainly oftentimes and deeply hostile to the Christian faith and to the witness of Christ. And so you are the generation, um, because of when you were born, when your parents decided to, you know, enjoy intimacy together, and here you are, you know, but I want to remind you of the quote from Esther, which you're probably familiar with, for such a time as this. And so I want to encourage you, before we go to our, to, to our final uh, reflection, I want to encourage you to see yourselves having not been born by accident or some capricious type of thing, uh, but in fact that you're born with purpose and that God has breathed and created you for such a time as this for your campuses to be communities of the Spirit and witnesses to the wonder of Jesus of Nazareth, our Lord and Savior, to be a people who penetrate every aspect of society. You're the, you will be uh, the most educated formally. The question is, will you be a wise generation? And so to become a people that seek the wisdom of God and can penetrate the whole world because of your wealth and your mobility, if you'll give up the security of, of some of that, you can be a generation that profoundly reshapes the experience and the assumptions of those around you. And so what a noble calling. What a, you know, in a time where you're, sociologists say in your generation that you're really struggling with, you know, there's so many options. What is my purpose in life and stuff? Here you have a purpose that underlies whatever you do. You have a mission to be the people of God in the world. And the people of God are a spirit people. They have and they live and they breathe by the Holy Spirit and by the Spirit of Jesus and his word. 
And so God, one of our themes is God has spoken his will and the spirit has hovered and moved and he reshapes our own chaos into the cosmos of his kingdom. And so there's great good news. There's great hope. Amen? So Lord, bless our reflection on this last time together. Uh, Shirley and I have thoroughly enjoyed hanging out with you, not getting any sleep, acting like teenagers or young 20-somethings again, and now we'll just go home and we'll sleep for a week, you know. <laughs> we'll do the Rip Van Winkle thing, but it has just been a joy to be with you. Uh, many of you have thanked us for coming. I want to again thank you for allowing us, you know, who are not immediate to you on an ongoing basis to allow us to be a part of your, of your life, part of your experience and your movement in the Lord. So thank you, and thank you for all of your good Christian kingdom hospitality with Texas tang, twang to it. I, we've loved it, okay? I would like us to stand. Sometimes we stand, yes, I really would like us to stand. And on the screen you will find one of the great creeds of the Christian church, the Christian community. It's called the Nicene Creed. In the Apostolic Creed, you have this brief, pithy statement, and I believe in the Holy Spirit, and that's it. Okay? The concern in the Apostolic Creed was the question of the nature of God and the question of the nature of Jesus of Nazareth in relationship to God. By the time you get to the Nicene Creed, the, the, the community of Jesus in the world is investigating and trying to figure out how to say more about the triune God and in, in the mystery of it. And so the Nicene Creed picks up what has already been said in, in other words in the Apostolic Creed and expands on it. And so it was a, uh, a common practice of the church to teach from these creeds or to recite them as a way to kind of tell us here is fundamentally the shaping word of our life in the scripture, okay? So let's read it together if we can. Are you ready? We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was, do we have the next screen? Yeah. <laughs> All of a sudden I'm doing a solo, okay? And you notice you want to read this with a certain rhythm so you can hear what you're reading, okay? So don't get going too fast, okay? So, for our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets, 
We believe in one holy, catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen and amen. Have a seat. In this last session, um, if we can go to the next slide. Oh, just hold it right there, okay? Perfect. Uh, in our last session, I, I gave this a title. It's called Dancing with Care. Okay? As you can see on your outline. And so I want to send you out with this imagery of dancing. And so it was really fitting. Did you notice that some of the songs we sang celebrated dancing? Did you notice that the young brother who came up to share his own pilgrimage of just uh, entering into full-bodied type of expressions with worship, that, that he, he alluded to this idea of dancing? And so uh, it's, an, it's a metaphor of the scripture that we come across, and I want it to be the working metaphor, the working word picture for our final reflection, okay? Take good notes, find points where the Holy Spirit says, don't forget that for you and our journey together, okay? So Jesus in the scriptures as a whole use all kinds of wonderful metaphors to describe the person and the work of the Spirit. We've already seen some of them. We've alluded to some of them. Jesus says he's like a fountain that's welling up within you. And we sang that song last night, that all my fountains, right? And so these songs are borrowing from the revelation of God in Scripture, and then they're, they're permeating them into our minds as we sing them and stuff. You know, we're told that he is the creator of cosmos, that he's at work, that he is what holds with the word, holds all things together, that he's the very breath of life, and that he brings a, a, a plethora, there's no other word to describe, a plethora of fruit. I love this picture up in the, my right hand top corner, if you can see it, is this, he's like a tree that bears all kinds of fruit fruits of blessing and character. So we, we're told that he's a gift giver. He's, in fact, he's the gift that keeps on giving gifts and turns all of us into other-oriented gift givers. He's a pressure in our lives. We're told that, that he presses behind us like a wind in our back, that he pressed Jesus into the wilderness, and then he brought Jesus out of the wilderness full of the power of the Spirit. So he's, he's a a presence that can invade us and fill us up. All these wonderful different images. And so in our last session here, as we think about the, the real challenge now is to take what we've heard, what we've seen, what we've experienced, what we've heard other people uh, taste and see and experience, and let's, now we have to keep just walking it out. One of my favorite book titles, sometimes I buy books just for the title, by the way. So, but this is a book worth reading. It's by Eugene Peterson, and it's a book on discipleship, and he simply named it A Long Obedience, but he thinks obedience is the joyful response of love, okay? It's not some, oh, i got to be obedient. A long obedience in the same direction, okay? We sing about the second coming of Christ. We are moving toward the consummation of his kingdom purposes every day that we live and walk. And so we're in a long obedience of followership. We're following where our Lord is going. 
And so your long obedience will take you back to your various campuses, to your workplaces, to your friendship circles, etc. And so this is the place we go from here where we've been in retreat and reflection and refreshment. And now we go out and we begin to try to grow it until it becomes so internalized in us that it's like second nature to our life to live this way. That's the long fruit, the growing fruit of a long obedience, okay? In the, in the earlier teaching session, we considered how Jesus and the scriptures direct us to respond. And we saw that it calls us to kinds of a language of intimacy, waiting and seeking and communicating and listening. It's all the things that women tell men they wish they that men would do more of, Right? And it's interesting, and I don't want to make any big thing of this, but in the Greek, the, the Holy Spirit is a feminine word, okay? And now I'm not putting masculine, you know, gender in that sense, but it's interesting that much of the movement of the Spirit has this kinds of qualities that are associated with, with the godly motherhood and that kind of thing. And in the scripture, you know, we're told God is both a father, and, but he's also a mother to Israel. There's this mixture of genders. But I think one of the things that the Holy Spirit has done in my life, he has got me in touch with the implicit virtues that we oftentimes associate with the feminine side. And so I'm becoming more whole as the Holy Spirit teaches me to listen, teaches me to hear, teaches me to wait, teaches me to be something other than a testosterone-laced activist. Okay? And so there's this wholeness of our life in the Spirit. But I want to look at a second response toward the gift of the Spirit in those, the, those images uh, today, as I said. In that second response, I want us to look at, look at three texts, okay? I want us to start with Galatians chapter 5, verse 25. It's a wonderful and positive command. St. Paul writing to the Galatian communities says this, Since we live by the Spirit... Let us keep in touch with the Spirit. Excuse me, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Paul, in my mind, must have been a dancer. And it is part of the Jewish tradition that they love to dance. Now, but it's not the kind of modern dance that we see so often that started in the 60s, where you're out on the floor all by yourself oftentimes. That it's really just me exhilarated in my own joy of body movement or whatever. Uh, the Jewish dances, the festival dances, there was holding of hands and there was rings and circles. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't line dancing because that's just a lot of individuals hooked together, right? No, it was circles of life, you know, and Simba said amen. Okay? It had to do with the beauty of motion. It had to do with, with the, the, the artistry and the athleticism of it. And, and somehow between the music and the words, and, and so tonight, tonight we found ourselves, me awkwardly, because I never have been able to dance with a hoot, twirling. Uh, when we twirled, you just, you know, whoever picked that song surely will love you forever because it allows her to do her twirl thing. We sing a song at our home community about twirling, and, and she just loves it, you know. And she looks at me and says, can you just try to figure out how to make your feet go in a circle, okay? Well, you know, this idea of twirling, actually, this idea of dancing is embedded in statements, a statement about the character of God. Uh, it's in Zechariah, and I couldn't remember the text, so you'll have to find it. But it says that the Lord dances over us with joy. Uh, or the, the word literally is he, tw he does a twirl. 
He, he, his joy causes him to spin, so to speak. And so here we, we discover God is a dancer. That God is moving and he enters into relationship. And dancing is always this interesting relationship. When Shirley and I dance, which is very, very seldom, um, and uh, there's all kinds of reasons for that, but the biggest one is that they were just completely clumsy. Uh, I love to watch people really know how to dance, you know, and who can do the movements of dance and group ballet things at our, at our uh, church and that kind of thing. Or we go to a wedding every once in a while, and the bridal groom will say, oh, come on, you did our premarital, we'll come out on the floor and dance. So we'll go out and stumble around for one song, you know. Um, and what we've discovered is, is that because we don't dance very much, it's hard for us to keep in step with each other. Shirley is a very yielding, generous, gracious type of woman, but uh, she's not quite sure how to be led when you're dancing. So I try to explain to her, well, if I, if I put pressure on your back and draw you this way, I'm going to move back, and if, I put, if you don't feel pressure and you feel me leaning, then I'm going to go forward. You know? And if we dance more often, we learn how to keep in step with each other, right? Now, some of you are looking at me like a bunch of Baptists, and you go, dancing, isn't that of the devil? You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, some of it probably is devilish, so yes, you'll have to be discerning what's appropriate, okay? But here's this idea. Paul says, since we live by the Spirit, let us learn to dance in step with Him. So the Spirit has a direction. He has movement. He's going someplace. He's doing something. And the challenge for us is to hear and to follow him. He's now leading us. He's the new comforter, the new counselor, the new advocate. Jesus calls him all these things in John 14 through up to, to the beginning of 17. Listen to how Jesus understands him. And so we're called to this joyful thing of dancing. But to dance, you have to know. And there has to be a humility. You have to be able to yield. You have to hear the music. You have to hear the music of God's word to us and keep in step with it. But I want you to go out with a little bit of toe-tapping anticipation that here God is going to lead you back by his spirit into the places you came from. And he wants you to twirl in the spirit. And he wants you to keep in step with him. Now, one would hope that that was easy, but at least Shirley and I find it's not even easy in the physical realm to keep in step with one another. So it is a learning type of experience. So that's the positive thing I want us to have in the back of our mind for you and I as we think about responding to the Spirit. And then I want, two I want to look at two commands that are put in the negative. Now, the thing you have to understand about negative commands in the Old and the New Testament is that they're there as a statement of what is being protected. So in the Old Testament, when God says, thou shalt not commit adultery, what it is saying is this incredibly high view of covenantal love. When he says, thou shalt not steal, there's this incredibly high and positive view of the right of the neighbor to live at peace, at shalom, without the threat of my breaking in and ripping off their stuff. Each command that's in the negative is actually another, a reflective tool to push our minds to what is good and to push our minds against what is evil. Okay? And so these are in the negative, but they celebrate a positive, if we can put it that way. 
Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. St. Paul, writing to the people of Jesus at Ephesus, says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now this is the, the emperor's seal that he's alluding to. That says that, that with the emperor's seal, there's this kind of statement that this belongs to the emperor. Okay? And so Paul picks up that imagery of being sealed. He says, what is the mark on your life that says you belong to the King Jesus movement? That you're a King Jesus person? And he says, it's the spirit that seals you in the present age and gives you the foretaste and the confidence of the age to come. Another place Paul said, will say, and I think Ronnie mentioned it, if I remember right, one of you mentioned it, but, but it's from the spirit that our spirit is taught to say, Abba, Father. That we enter into the same intimacy and growing toward the same intimacy that Jesus ex experienced. It was Jesus who used this Abba term so extensively that suddenly we hear this kind of intimacy and warmth. And so we're, wel we're being welcomed into this positive thing, but here's the negative. Here's the thing that you have to resist. Here's the thing that you have to work against doing. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit who sealed you to the day of your redemption. Or in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, again in the negative, because it's in a corrective letter to the Thessalonians, he says, do not put out the Spirit's fire. Well, what does it mean to grieve the Spirit? When he says, don't grieve the Spirit, what is he speaking of? The word describes the experience of causing sorrow, pain, or distress in another person. We see Jesus in the Gospels grieved in the Spirit when he sorrows over Jerusalem and cries out in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under the safety of her wings. But you were not willing. This is one of the most excruciating texts in all of Scripture. It's more excruciating even than the, that, that, that the, you know, profound grief of, of David when he says, Absalom, my son, Absalom. And so to grieve, you know, it has this sense of mourning, this sense of, of loss, this sense of, it's kind of a counterpart, a contrary counterpart to joy. Here, though, this idea of grieving is something that we can foster onto God. We'll come back to that thought in a moment, okay? He says to human beings, Paul says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. In Thessalonians, he says, don't quench. 
And so here the metaphor changes. The action uh, is similar, but the metaphor changes. Here it's a metaphor of a fire. And the Spirit is oftentimes uh, metaphorically spoken of as the fire of God, the purging fire that cleanses us, the fire that ignites us, etc. You find it in the Old and the New Testament. To quench is to, to suppress, to dampen down. We used to have a wood stove that we heated our house with, and the thing I had to remember at night was to turn down the damper, dampening uh, front uh, dampeners to, in order to quench the fire. Okay? So Paul takes that image. He says, don't quench the fire of the Spirit. Don't tamp him down. Don't act or live or relate in such a way to him that you begin to extinguish the power and the passion of his intentions. And he has intentions. He wants to push you into places. He wants to lead you into places. He wants to lift you into places. So he's in movement. And so the dance, it all fits quite beautifully together, I think. Paul speaks... Of these two dangers, this danger of quenching and this danger of grieving. Here specifically in Thessalonians, he says, don't quench the spirit of prophecy. He does the same things in different language in the Corinthian uh, text I had you read, where, where he's so careful to not let the Corinthian church abuse the gifts, but also not to let them reject them. He tells Timothy in, first, in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 6, he says to Timothy, who is his, his uh, uh, um, young disciple that he's left in Ephesus in a difficult situation where false teachers have invaded uh, the uh, teaching ministry of the church, and it's just it's a mess. And Timothy's a very young man at the time, you know, because Paul will allude, don't let anybody look down on you because of your youth, but rather live the mature life before them. But early on, he says to Timothy, stir up the flame of the spirit that is in you. And the book, if you read it carefully, it appears what's tamping down, what's grieving the spirit in Timothy's life is this over-consciousness of the opposition and the, and, the, and the opinions of human beings around him. In this case, church folk. Okay? Again, I want, to, I want to try to help you contextualize. I think each generation has its own struggles, its own formative, you know, kinds of spirit. And one of the things that's being formed in you is you, you, you want to fly low in the radar. You want to be stealthy because you don't want to be, be perceived as being anything but fully tolerant. You don't want to be peculiar. You don't want to stand out. Whereas hippies, we wanted exactly the opposite. So our problem was sit down, shut up, and let other people have some room. Yours may be stand up, speak up, and be confident in God's love for you. Timothy was more of that type. He needed to be confident. So Paul can say to him, after he says, stir up the fire of the spirit that is emplaced in you and you're, and you're coming to Christ, he'll say, and do not be ashamed of me, the, you know, my gospel. Don't be ashamed of your life in Christ. Be bold. Now, it doesn't say be rude or be weird, you know, in, in an appropriate way, but be bold in the spirit. 
And so there's these kinds of callings for us. But what are these two commands? They tell us something about us and something about God. Okay? What do these commands tell us about God? Now, when I read these and began to think about them early on, you know, I, I, I realized, wow, th- this is a bit surprising to me. The church I grew up in, God was kind of seen as almost this uh, deistic, you know, kind of what Ronnie was talking about, this removed deistic entity. He was like the great clockmaker that got the thing going and then went on permanent vacation, the ultimate snowbirder. And that he wasn't involved intimately with his world. And that he was just kind of waiting for the clock to run out and then he'd come and do his gig at the end of uh, of the age. That he was, uh, that philosophers started talking about, uh, because of the influence of Platonic theory and stuff, that Plato thought that God had to be truly perfect, and that anything that had nuance of change or emo- an emotion in it, or feeling, couldn't be perfect. So God had to be the unfeeling power, the unmoved mover. And so there was this Greek view of God that came in and began to infiltrate into the church at various, through various people early on in the church so that pretty soon God became more and more distant. Of course, when God becomes more and more distant, human beings in the leadership of the church become more and more prevalent. And so pretty soon we look to men or to women to guide us and direct us in an inordinately kind of leaning way. Because we've diminished our own experience of God. But I'd like to suggest to you that that he's not, in Paul's view and understanding, and in Jesus' experience, he's not the unmoved mover. He is the prime mover. God is described to us as the one who feels all things most fully and truly. And so these language groups of quenching and grieving, they're emotional language group, aren't they? It's a, it's a, you feel the suppression of the, of the heart or the mind. You feel the kind of the sorrow of, of a grieving life. It also, these texts tell me that God has called us into what all of us probably take for granted, but sometimes we just have to remind ourselves that God has invited us into a two-way relational reality. That there is a sense even of partnership as we grow in him. The theologians call the command of Jesus to go and make disciples in all nations to the end of the age and the end of the earth. They call it the commission, the great commission. That we are co-laborers with Christ, St. Paul says. In a narcissistic age, it all becomes, what are you going to give me next? And God gets transformed into kind of a celestial Santa Claus. And we're deeply disappointed because, well, I asked him into my life and I didn't get everything I wanted. And, or we, we, get, we get these conundrums. Why do hard things happen to, he, to people that love Jesus? Why? Because we live in a broken world. Jesus said, in this world you will suffer all kinds of troubles. He warned us. He is a spiritual realist. He says, but be of great good cheer, for I have overcome this world. 
And so we live in this, what I call this betweener thing, that we live with the sorrows of a broken world, and yet we live with the hope of the promise of a healed one. And so we bring something unique to our world. We bring a reliable hope, not just a wish dream. And we're already tasting the first fruits of it in the Spirit. We're already beginning to taste and see the joys and the pleasures of the kingdom of God. So God has entered into this relationship with us. It's the depth of God's love that we see revealed here, I think. The Lord's love is of such depth and magnitude that the Lord himself embraces the possibility of experiencing true sorrow and true rejection from his own children. It's said graphically in John's first chapter of his of his gospel, where he says, but speaking of the incarnation, and Jesus says, he came unto his own, and his own rejected him. They gave him no room in their fellowship. Sometimes it's been talked about how much Jesus laughed, but what we're told is that he was a man of great sorrows. Now, I'm quite confident he had great joy. But it is interesting that the scripture is concerned that we understand the depth of his sorrow. Like that text, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stoned the prophets, how often I've longed to gather you to save your children, but you would have nothing to do with me. What strikes me here, what I find so surprising is that you and I, mere mortals, saved from our own rebellions by his grace, have been allowed to touch the senses of God. That God has chosen in his sovereignty to create a world in which there is time and space and to create people who have the freedom to embrace or reject. Here is a God who took enormous risks in order to create the real possibilities and the potentialities of genuine love between him and part of his creation. That what he did with the angels, he then did with us. That he created us to have the possibility of true relationship. And in in creating true relationship, he has embraced though that reality and lives in that reality with us, which means he can experience the depth of joy in his children and the depth of sorrow in their quenching and their rejecting of his love. It's kind of a backwards kingdom. There's a world that God creates and the world that Jesus of Nazareth comes into. It's not like the king who dominates out of force and power and forces your servitude. But instead, he's the humble king, almost a backward king, who instead appeals and invites you. And what is incredibly troubling to me is that we actually can say no. What is incredibly 
hopeful for me is he's created the doorway called the gospel in which I can say yes again and find deliverance from my alienation with him. I remember as a young kid, we would have dances at my middle school. I was awkward then, too. And uh, we would sit on opposite sides of the room, all the boys over here and all the girls over here. But we knew we were supposed to somehow do this with the opposite sex. You know, it was like preamble to all the problems of adolescence. Okay? And, and so some guys were very, very bold, and they would just stomp across, and, you know, and they would pick out the girl they wanted. And if the, you know, the girl had enough courage, she'd say yes, and we would go out and kind of dance alone after that to the Beatles or whoever, you know? And so I was very shy. I know that's hard to believe, but it is, in fact, true. And so I, I not only would be, you know, one of the last guys to finally go and ask one of the last girls, you felt kind of socially, uh, you know, dutiful not to leave the poor girl sitting there, and you were feeling, wow, no, you know, nobody picked me either for the team, you know? And so we would, we would do this. But it strikes me that God is the one who has made initiation to us. He has come and asked us, come dance with me. So for those of you who just didn't get picked for the team or you were last, kind of, oh, crud, there he is or there she is, or nobody ever asked you to dance, the Lord of creation has invited you to come and two-step with him and keep in step with him. Remember what Shirley told you, that in the most grievous part of her young life, as a mom of two people, she found the text that I will be a husband to you. And she found in the spirit, while it couldn't meet her biological drives, it could meet the deepest psychological and emotional and identity drives. That he could come and say, come away with me, my beloved, my bride. Here he says to us, come and dance with me. Come and dance the Lord with the Lord of the dance. Remember Jesus, uh, excuse me, remember the Father's words to Jesus. Here is my son, and he pleases me greatly. The opposite of grieving, the opposite of quenching, that the son, when he enters into the waters of John's baptism and comes out and is filled with the overflowing presence of the Spirit as he begins his mission consciously in the public frame, what is it that happens? The disciples said that they heard in the heavens a voice that said, this is my son whom I find great pleasure in. I've been asked by students at times, you know, what do you want to hear when you get to, to, to the Lord? You know, whether it's the end of the age that I don't go through death or whether I go through death, which is looking more and more like a real possibility. Um, you know, what do, what do I want to hear? You know, Shirley jokingly says, you know, that she says, well, I just, I hope somebody will be there to carry my heavy crown, you know. Um, you know, you know, I'm not near that confident, you know, <laughs> you know, or sometimes she'll, you know, she'll say something, I'll say, wow, you're patting your on your back, and she'll say, well, yeah, you know, I, I just don't need any more jewels, they're getting too heavy. I mean, she's making fun of herself, mind you, okay. So, you know, what do I really want to hear? I want to hear this. I want to hear my father my Abba Father, say what I never heard my earthly father say. Well done, son. 
Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in. Come on in. I don't care if I hear anything else. If I could hear that one word as God's final welcoming word. Now, it would be fun to hear it along the way too, huh? Jesus hears it at the beginning. We need to learn to hear the Spirit. But it also means we need to walk in a way that is pleasing to Him. The fact that God can be sorrowed and His Spirit's freedom in us quenched, I think should cause us to wonder what troubles God. It's only when we become aware of what grieves or quenches Him that we better understand the nature of the dance. One time, surely, I went to a place and they were teaching square dancing. And the problem was I didn't even understand the language. You know, you're supposed to do si do and all this other stuff. And if you don't know the language, if you don't know how it's structured, you can't even follow the way of it. I think it is imperative that we listen and read and reflect again on God's revealed word to us and especially in the presence of Jesus and his life what it is that grieves or quenches him what do the prophets call us away from and I think we have to stir up in our hearts something that I don't think is normal and natural to the fallen nature I think it's normal and natural to true sonship or true daughterhood, but I don't think it's natural to our fallen nature. And that is that we need to stir up a carefulness and a sensitivity to not cause sorrow to God's heart as best we can. That we should strive with our strength to not grieve Him. We're told that in Christ we've been born over and that we've been given a new heart. And this new heart's first fruit, the first impulse of the Spirit's guidance in your life will be to learn to love God with all your heart. This is a good death to the self. Because one cannot love oneself, which is the root of almost all sin and evil in the world, and have room to love God with all your heart. And so we could try to kill ourselves, which is really difficult when you're so incredibly self-concerned as we are as human beings, or we can simply make our focus go to loving God, and he will invade and press us into our right place. He will create a new heart in us as we attend to him in love. It's only when we become aware of what grieves and quenches his spirit that we'll be able to be careful to watch over our steps and to dance with him in ever-growing proficient joy and beauty. Listen to what St. Paul says to the Ephesians in trying to help them understand what things to not step in, what things grieve and quench the spirit. Chapter 4, verse 25 through 32. Therefore, each of you must put off. Metaphors changed. So 
you're going to have to mix dancing now with what you're wearing. St. Paul says, each of you must strip off the clothing of falsehood. You have to strip off this clothing of living a false speaking life, a facaded life. And you should speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, he assumes the reality of the presence of anger, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no more. And there's lots of ways to steal besides just ripping off somebody's iPod or iMac or i-anything. Ripping off somebody's purity. Ripping off somebody's reputation through slander and gossip. Ripping off somebody's confidence or sense of belonging by alienating from them because they're awkward or different than your awkward differentness. Lots of ways to steal. Here he's probably talking quite literally about thievery in the normal way we think of it. Because he goes on to say, He who has been stealing must steal no more. Rather, he must work with his hands, doing something useful with them, so that he may have something to give to those who have need. This really was transformative in my life. I owned a business, a janitorial business, put myself through college. And before I came to know the Lord, I, I never thought of my work as a means to create generosity. That God has put in my hands the opportunity to make wealth in order to bless those who can't or, you know, due to circumstances, don't have enough. The Old Testament says there's, there's to be no poor amongst you, Israel, not because there weren't poor people, but because those who had much were to give generously to those who did not. This is a radical different kind of worldview than the communist worldview that whereby force of arms and force conformity we're going to create social egalitarianism, equality. No, this is the working of love. That God liberates me from kind of the self-possessed life that steals and grabs all the stuff for me, including other people's stuff if I can. And instead liberates us and turns work into the joy of, it doesn't matter if I'm doing burgers or I'm doing Chick-fil-A or I'm making pizza or I'm working for Google or I'm in some high-powered place or something. It doesn't matter what kind of work as long as it's good, righteous, hands on work but why do i work i work so that i might give to those in need do you hear that how radical that is so it may help you if you have a, what you think is a crummy job that this crummy job can feed children all over the world this crummy job can help people have heat in their homes. So this crummy job can help the missionaries move outward into the world that you're not in. This crummy job can turn into a great blessing. But it means a conversion of the whole way we think about stuff and self and work and riches. 
And there is no generation that has a greater challenge than mine and your generation. We are the most endowed material generation in the history of humanity. And so to us whom so much has been given intellectually, experientially, in terms of mobility, in terms of wealth, we should be the most free and generous of all people. But we're not. We grieve the Spirit. The average evangelical in the United States, is, uh, research says, gives 2% of their income. I told one of you that your great-grandparents, towards the height of the Depression, if they were an evangelical Christian, would have been giving at least 10 or more at the height of the Depression. We drink $5 coffees and then say, I don't have anything to give. It grieves the Holy Spirit. Not that you drink a $5 cup of coffee, although we may be insane for doing it, you know. It may be a, a sign of, you know, that our brains are, you know, getting wired weird. What's so sad is, is that we wouldn't give up coffee for the sake of missions. So you'll have to teach yourself to dance in generosity. The culture won't teach it. Then you have the church culture won't teach it. Will you teach us again how to be generous? How to be confident that God will take care of us, that God will provide for us, and that we can't outgive God, and that it's more joyful and blessed to give than to receive in every sense of giving. Do not let unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Boy, that means you're going to have to turn your television off and watch about you know, a tenth of all the movies that are made at best. Think about all of our humor. You know, it's so degrading of people. You know, it, it, it's what I think Brandon said during the, the, the talking time, that he'll hear things and he'll, he'll find himself laughing and all of a sudden he'll go, hold it, would God laugh at that? So we are literally being enculturated to laugh at things that are evil. To, to get a mushy about things that are wicked. To think fornication is beautiful because they put beautiful people and beautiful music to it. Don't let unwholesome things come out of your mouth. Jesus said, it's not what you eat that defiles you. It's what comes out of your heart, Brady, that defiles. And it doesn't just defile, show you're defiled. It defiles those who are around you. And so what does it mean? Does that mean that Christians just have to go around all the time being super sober? And, no, you can have fun celebrating and laughing at things that are truly ironic and humorous. But it can't be, you know, jokes that demean. It can't be stuff that makes light of evil. Paul says, these things grieve the spirit. How can there be room, James says, for fresh water of the Spirit to come spewing out of our mouths like a water fountain? The words of prophecy, like you read in Isaiah, where you go, oh, the guy is the handle prophet of the Old Testament. You know, he's like handles Messiah. He says it so powerfully, so Handel says, who could say it better than Isaiah? And he puts it to fabulous music. And it edifies, it moves us. Or it should. And so our minds have to become saturated with the, the language of God. Not so we say, thus saith the Lord. 
I mean, that's King James language, right? Okay, but that what we say has a fruitfulness of graciousness to it. That it's that text in Proverbs I told you that I love. You know, a word rightly spoken is like uh, apples made out of gold and placed in a platter of silver. It's artwork. And James tells us that the most unruly member of our, of our bodies is our tongue. James wonders, how can we speak such bitter waters and fresh waters at the same time? He says, it shouldn't be mixed. It ought to be all good, safe water to drink. It grieves the God who speaks to the heart when we speak things from the heart that oppresses the heart. And boy, this is just, what a challenge to grow in this, huh? Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Then he goes positive. Phew, I get to end some of Paul's negative list. I go, okay, okay already. You know, I get the point. But maybe I don't, because then I fall back into it. Verse 32, be kind. Be compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other, just as Christ in God forgave you. Can you imagine what, a, as Simon and Garfunkel and James Taylor sing, what a wonderful, wonderful world this would be? That if people had that kind of generosity of stuff, generosity of speech, generosity of forgiveness, generosity of welcoming, that if we would just do unto others what God has done unto us, if we just live the golden rule and the two great commands, could you, what a wonderful, wonderful community we would create as a witness to the world. We're told in Isaiah 63.10 that Israel grieved God during their time in the wilderness after he rescued them from slavery in Egypt. Psalm 78 recounts in a hymn of remembrance and confession how Israel did this. So they've been delivered from Pharaoh and from the powers of, of, of oppression. They go into the wilderness and they grieve God, we're told. It's worth studying it. It will educate our minds and souls on the sensibilities of God's heart. So what grieves him in closing? One, lovelessness, because he is the spirit of the fruit of love. Unholiness, because he's the Holy Spirit. Disunity, that's disunity between people who, who are together in community and who share beliefs because he is the one spirit. One of the officials in the denomination that I work with uh, shared with our church board and stuff, he said, you know, sociologists are writing now about the post-denominational Christian world. Now, they think that it's coming. Will we ever get there? I doubt it. 
because human beings like to have their teams. Go Hawks. And we think somehow we are superior because we're on this team. We're arrogant. Rather than teaching each other gently what, this, what we see in the scripture and what we believe and having open hearts and honoring hearts, we instead say, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. We create an unnecessary disunity. There is a disunity that comes when one tests false teaching and says it's not true. But we create arrogant, egocentric disunity by saying our group's the best group. We, treat, we create tribes instead of a culture. It is so splintered that we very sensitively, I hope, and out of a desire to see unity be birthed where it can be, when we take communion at the end of our year, we, this last year, we broke bread first, and we said, this is not communion. And we did it because very conscientious Catholic students that are part of our community, but also of all their life been raised, that you don't share in this communion meal with those who aren't part of the Catholic communion, part of the problem of the division of the church in the world, that they were left out of our bread breaking and our celebration of our life together. And so we said we will do this kind of sharing of the bread of life and, we, and we, this is not communion. And then we will serve communion to those of you who in good conscience can do it. We accommodated. Even though I believe that communion is a universal meal and that it should welcome any Jesus person, I'm still aware that we're shaped by our culture and our church upbringings. And so we have to, with graciousness, accommodate where we can. Until the love of God and the word of God grows us up into deeper unity. And may God bring that day. Amen. May God bring that day. What grieves him is the misuse, as we said, of words. The power of speech and God said. And the spirit brings it into pass. There is also the power of evil words. And so the misuse of the power of speech grieves the spirit because he's the spirit of truth. We read here that forgive one another. Unforgiveness grieves the spirit because he is the spirit of compassion and reconciliation. And we are so touchy. I mean, on our campus, tolerance is the ultimate virtue. Be tolerant, be tolerant, be tolerant. You know what it's created? Apathy. Oh, I'm tolerant. I don't give a rip what anybody does. Do your thing if you want to. Remove from a concern for them and for their ultimate well-being. At the same time, from professors all the way down to the youngest freshmen. We are so touchy. You know, why'd you say that? We're mad. We won't talk to the person anymore. We're catty. And by the way, there are male and female cats if you haven't checked that out lately. 
You know, we blame it on women, that women are gossipy and catty. And while we say that, men say that, we're being gossipy and catty. You know? Physician, heal thyself. It is so ground into us that we have so many places where we just kind of scoot around people because they're not our kind of people. What kind of people are Jesus' kind of people? Paul says, well, there are not very many that are in the world great. There's not many rich. There's not too many that are real bright, et cetera, et cetera. He says, you know, it seems like awkward and disheveled kinds of people come to Jesus. Make room for them. Because maybe you fit the cultural stereotype of not being disheveled or awkward. But in the terms of the kingdom of God and holiness, we are all disheveled and awkward. It's said of the early church, when the Spirit came in power, one of the witnesses of the world around him said, Behold how they love one another. Perhaps more persuasive than any kind of apologetic you could ever give to the rational mind is if they see people who genuinely love each other, not just hug-hug, but by their words and their deeds. Maybe the most drawing power in our isolated, angry, self-righteous, you know, arrogance as an American people. And here's the good news. You can breathe in the spirit and he'll help us do this. And you can be on mission every single day with every kind of person you come in contact with. Christmas time, Shirley loves it. I always shop at the last minute. Drives Shirley nuts. So now she just does all the shopping. She compensates for me. But one of the things that we have fun doing at times, and we've talked about new ways to kind of grow that, we haven't done it yet, is that you'll walk in and there's so much stress. You notice that? And people are just barking at women and men that are working at cash registers. I mean, these people are just trying to do their job. And people are just dumping on them. And so we just kind of self-consciously try to say, how would Jesus treat this, this, this person who's checking me out here, you know? How do we say to them, thank you? This should become second nature to us. But to do that, you have to practice dancing with the Spirit. You have to keep in step with it. Well, those are things that grieve him. So your assignment as you drive home is I want you to talk to each other. Will you do this? Okay. I want you to talk to each other, and I want you to figure out, okay, those are some things that grieve him. The opposite are things that don't grieve him. What other things can we do corporately or individually on our campuses that would cause God to twirl in joy over us? I know what not to do to not step on the Spirit's toes. What should I do? Could I do? In the midst of my classes, in relationship to my professors, etc., how can I become light and salt in a kind of tasteless, tacky world and then go dance those things?
Go dance your campus. Go live in the spirit. Go and experience the Abba's joy in you. God bless you. Worship team. I want you to join hands. And as the worship praise team comes to help us celebrate him. Okay, that's good. They're joining across, making one community of diversity. When I started, I told you that the ministry of focus, its growth in the campus is just a wonderful encouragement for Cheryl's and I as we continue to age. I told you that one of my favorite songs is I See a New Generation Rising Up to take their place in selfless faith. I see the real possibility of students who are hungry and who want to make a difference in their world. I sense in so many of you a hunger for his word, a hunger to be full of him, and so Thank you. Press on. Press on with all your strength to the high calling that's in Christ Jesus. Abba, I pray you'd bless these brothers and sisters. I pray that you would speak to them, teach them the way of hearing, allow them to experience the ministry of your spirit in them and through them. Lord, we pray. We pray what Pope John XXIII prayed when he prayed, come Holy Spirit and create a new Pentecost in our world. We join that prayer of the church of the ages and say, come sweet spirit. Come, we need you. And we thank you, Abba, that in your love shown to us through Jesus, our Lord, and the one who has saved us, we've now received the spirit that begins to shape him in us. Bless these young men and women and grow them up into elders and servant leaders. Give them wisdom beyond their years and make them a peculiar people of joy and genuine hope in the world in which they live. To you be the glory. Great things, great things you've done. Do great things in us and do the great work of reconciling the nations to yourself. We pray your blessing in the name of our Lord Jesus and in the presence of the Spirit. Amen.